Hey, I'm Christopher Schiefling. Thank you so much for joining me for Auscultation, a podcast in search of a humanities-based practice of healthcare. Today, we're listening to excerpts from Three Thoughts by Alice Moore Dunbar-Nelson, a writer, journalist, and activist whose work spans many genres, including essay, short story, diary, and poetry. She grew up in New Orleans with African-American, Native American, Anglo, and Creole heritage. Excerpts from Three Thoughts by Alice Moore Dunbar-Nelson Who dares stand forth, the monarch cried, amid the throng and dare to give their aid and bid this wretch to live? I pledge my faith and crown beside, a woeful plight, a sorry sight, this outcast from all God-given grace. What ho, in all, no friendly face, no helping hand to stay his plight? St. Peter's name be pledged for I, the man's accursed, that's true, but ho, he suffers. None of you will mercy show or pity sigh? Strong men drew back, and lordly train did slowly file from the monarch's look whose lips curled with scorn. But from a nook a voice cried out, Though he has slain that which I loved the best on earth, yet will I tend him till he dies. I can be brave. A woman's eyes gazed fearlessly into his own. Some Thoughts on Marginalization I love this poem because it turns all my expectations upside down. The opening line, Who dares stand forth? The monarch cried, immediately brings up a scene of King Arthur calling on his knights to embark on some epic quest that will seal their names in legend. Instead, the monarch asks them to care for a sick man, but not only is he ill, he is a pariah. He is accursed and an outcast from all God-given grace. In the closing lines, Dunbar Nelson's insinuation of murder heightens his crimes against society. So in his own way, this patient presents as much danger and moral reckoning as any Arthurian dragon. The patient offers a springboard for thinking about the relationship between illness and marginalization. First, the monarch describes him as a woeful plight, a sorry sight. There are many reasons why it can be difficult to see people who are ill, and the brevity of the poem allows us to imagine all of them. Is his illness defiguring with wounds or tumor, or with emaciation or swelling? Is he contorted with pain frantic with delirium, or livid with itch? Is he contagious? The visceral reaction that many have to the sight of blood or injury speaks to a physiologic component in addition to the emotional and social components of this aversion to illness. Next comes the bit about being an outcast from all God-given grace. 
from leper colonies to the persistent stigma of people with HIV, communicable diseases have long incited ostracization and moral condemnation. Many other illnesses also carry the weight of culpability, from addiction to depression to lung cancer to weight disorders. The legacy of the historic association of health and illness with divinity certainly plays a role in the continued link of many diseases with sin. But with the current degree of scientific progress and secularization, why is the connection so persistent? I think its endurance points to deep social insecurities about illness and injury. Blaming the victim may be a way to feel safer from the threat of disease and injury. If illness comes from mistakes, then I can assure my health by taking the right care and precautions. Additionally, and perhaps more importantly, if people with illness are at fault, I don't need to bear the weight of acknowledging their suffering, and I don't have to grapple with why bad things happen to good people. Until the last stanza, it is possible to argue that the patient's marginalized status comes from bias against illness rather than any immoral action. But then we hear, He has slain that which I loved the best on earth. With this implication of murder, we must face his crime and the threat of further violence. It brings up the ethical question of what degree of health care should persons who have committed crimes receive. Finally, the anti-penultimate line reveals he is dying. Modern society avoids death like the plague, and death denials is endemic. Even in the poem, the monarch does not acknowledge this. Instead, he asks the court to bid this wretch to live and to stay his plight. Even when someone has died, there are so many euphemisms to skip around the D word, kick the bucket, went to heaven, went to a better place, went to the farm, passed away, resting in peace, called home, the list goes on and on. With such avoidance of death, it is little wonder that even strong men drew back. Apparently, facing dragons is one thing, but facing death from illness is a whole nother story. This episode is brought to you by Helping Hands. You have to hand it to Helping Hands because they are a true bird in the hand. They are never heavy, red, or tired, and everything is in hand with Helping Hands. So the question is, are you in good hands? Some thoughts on the calling to healthcare. It is very curious that the monarch, a figure who is usually associated with punishment of crimes, insists so forcefully on getting care for this man, who he himself describes as a cursed, a wretch, and an outcast from all God-given grace. He promises first his political support to anyone who will give their aid, saying, I pledge my faith and crown beside. In the next stanza, he ups the ante, promising entrance into heaven, 
saying, St. Peter's name be pledged for I. And when no one comes forward, his lips curled scorn. All this to say that caring for this man is a political priority. There is a glimpse into why this is so important to the monarch at the end of his speech. The man's accursed, that is true, but ho, he suffers. The ruler seems to argue that suffering is sufficient reason to care in spite of all the patient's flaws. In the monarchy of the poem, it seems that health care is an inalienable right, even for criminals. In the U.S., there also is a legal mandate to provide health care to prisoners, because to not provide care would be a cruel and unusual punishment. However, just as the lordly train that slowly file from monarchs look, much of the medical care provided by the criminal justice system in the U.S. is far from the spirit of the legal mandate. For example, even though guidelines recommend screening uh, persons in correctional facilities for HIV, hepatitis C, and tuberculosis because of higher rates in this population, many prisons have limited access to testing for these infections. Additionally, while more than 65% of people in prisons have a substance use disorder, only 11% receive treatment. Even as studies show, medical therapy improves mortality and recidivism. Finally, evidence suggests that such substandard care is particularly prevalent in private prisons, though comparative effectiveness studies between state-run and private institutions is not available. Even more fascinating is the question, why on earth does the woman step forward to care for this patient? She, of all people, has reason to wish for his punishment, as he has killed what she loved best on earth. There are even fewer clues into her reason than the monarch, which makes it all the more mysterious. Is she drawn by mercy, pity, or religious piety, as the monarch had suggested? Or is her motivation beyond the imagination of political authority? In a culture that continues to remake mediocre King Arthur movies, chivalrous motives of honor, courage, and justice are easily understood. Through the intrigue of this woman, Dunbar Nelson pushes us to look for a different type of hero, guided by a new set of virtues. Compassion rather than romance, curiosity rather than conquest, and healing rather than punishment. Some Thoughts on Facing Dragons Bravery bookends the poem. The monarch begins, Who dares stand forth? And the woman concludes, I can be brave. The last thing we see is a woman's eyes gazed fearlessly into his own. And there is ambiguity about whose eyes these are. On my first read, I envisioned her staring down the monarch but on further reflection, I realized she could be facing the patient. If she is looking at him instead of the ruler, the final words take on a new poignancy. The last words, into his own, give his eyes a place of great prominence, 
which is heightened further because the word own breaks the rhyme scheme. This subversion of the poetic form lends further credence to the view that the woman faces the marginalized patient rather than the powerful monarch. Moreover, according to the rhyme scheme, own is supposed to rhyme with earth. So the break in form points to his limited time left on this world. While the courage of knights is a common literary trope, Dunbar Nelson points out a different kind of courage. The courage to sit with illness and suffering, especially when therapies are lacking, to look past patient crimes and find a common humanity, to tell someone they are dying. The poem calls to mind the times in medical training when I've been struck with fear. Entering the locked unit at the State Mental Institute on my psychiatry rotation, jumping at the ring of the code pager on those first nights on call, sweating with the head crowning and the resident fretting behind me, gasping at a blood-red return from a diagnostic paracentesis, telling a group of strangers we had done everything we could. While these moments may make for good drama in a medical TV show, the bravery of the woman draws me back to the daily courage of a day in clinic. Listening to stories about the loss of jobs or homes or children or independence, or hope, admitting that I don't have an easy answer, or an answer at all, pausing for two deep breaths before seeing the patient who triggers a particularly strong countertransference, extending support even when medical therapy is lacking and I don't know what to say, letting go of all that still remains at the end of the day and coming back home. This quote from the poet Rainer Maria Rilke seems a fitting conclusion. Perhaps all the dragons in our lives are princesses who are only waiting to see us act just once with beauty and courage. Perhaps everything that frightens us is, in its deepest essence, something helpless that wants our love. Excerpts from Three Thoughts by Alice Moore Dunbar-Nelson Who dares stand forth, the monarch cried, amid the throng and dare to give their aid and bid this wretch to live? I pledge my faith and crown beside, a woeful plight, a sorry sight, this outcast from all God-given grace. What ho in all no friendly face, no helping hand to stay his plight. St. Peter's name be pledged for I. The man's accursed, that's true, but ho, oh, he suffers. None of you will mercy show or pity sigh. Strong men drew back, and lordly train did slowly file from the monarch's look whose lips curled with scorn. But from a nook, a voice cried out, Though he has slain that which I loved the best on earth, yet will I tend him till he dies. 
I can be brave. A woman's eyes gazed fearlessly into his own. Three Thoughts by Alice Moore Dunbar Nelson appears in her book, Violets and Other Tales, published in 1895 and is now part of public domain. You can find show notes for this episode at anauscultation.wordpress.com, and you can send comments, suggestions, and questions to the Twitter handle at anauscultation or to the email anauscultation at gmail.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, follow, or share to help others find out about us too. Auscultation is produced and recorded on the ancestral homes of the Ute, Cheyenne, and Arapaho peoples. Until next month, be kind and live the questions.